ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. ESG, Environmental Sustainable Governance, continues to be in the news these days. Prong three, governance, usually does not get as much play as the first two, but we recently saw a prime example of governance. It was the stunning defeat of Exxon management for at least three board of director seats. These ExxonMobil Corp nominated directors were defeated by a slate nominated by an Exxon shareholder led by engine company number one, who according to the Wall Street Journal, ran a six month, $30 million campaign centered on pushing the oil giant to commit to carbon neutrality. In other words, another prong of ESG environmental. There are several interesting points in this series of events culminating in the board election and several important lessons for the compliance professional around ESG. I do not know if Exxon had its collective head buried in the sand, was so arrogant that it believed it was infallible, or something else, or perhaps a combination of all three. It started poorly for Exxon when they refused to listen to their shareholders. Engine number one reached out to Exxon to seek nominees who would commit the company to a long-term carbon-neutral approach. According to the New York Times, on January 22nd, Exxon CEO Darren Woods and lead independent director Ken Fraser held a Zoom call with engine number one executives. During the meeting, Fraser struck a conciliatory tone, and at one point he held up a peace sign and said the company didn't consider engine company's number one nominees to be qualified. Charlie Penner the fund's head of active engagement, said the company should reconsider insisted on four candidates taking seats on Exxon's board. After the call, both sides girded for battle, with Exxon naming new board members later without engine number one's input. But Exxon was not simply ignoring engine number one. They treated other investors the same. The New York Times reported that Ann Simpson, head of corporate governance at the California Public Employees Retirement System, CalPERS, said, it has been like pulling teeth to get Exxon directors to talk to investors. But it was more than CalPERS, and it included such hedge fund heavyweights as State Street Global Advisors, T. Rowe Price, Vanguard, and a host of others. According to the Wall Street Journal for Engine Number 1, launched by investor Chris James, with roughly $250 million under management, The campaign was a referendum on its focus of combining environmental concerns with a company's financial outlook. Quoted in the New York Times, James said, quote, our overall goal is really greater transparency, end quote. The nonsensical approach of Exxon seems evident now. They have violated one of the basic laws of capitalism. That is, the shareholders are your owners of your company, not management. Neil Minow, writing in the Harvard Law School Journal on Corporate Governance, said, Corporations like the U.S. government were set up with a series of checks and balances, and one of them was the ability of investors to replace directors if they were unhappy with the direction of the company. Moreover, the entire system of capitalism is based on having a credible mechanism for minimizing agency costs. If investors have no recourse when they are not satisfied with an investor or other investment or other than selling stock when it is undervalued, 
The cost of capital will reflect additional risk. And when it becomes intolerable, a group like Engine Number 3 will recognize the potential for creating value by leveraging shareholder discontent to support meaningful change. Whether Exxon's intolerance was due to incompetence or arrogance, we may never know. Cost to Exxon was quite high. Already perceived as leading the fight against moving towards carbon neutrality, perhaps this vote will portend a shift in Exxon thinking, although this heavily depends on the corporate culture willing to listen. Think about this for a moment. These investors who voted against Exxon's board candidates did so with the knowledge that they may well be sacrificing short-term financial interest for a longer-term play. While such thinking is certainly refreshing, it is usually lacking in most corporations. What is the role of compliance? Matt Kelly, in a radical compliance blog post, discussed a materiality map of ESG concerns, citing to one in a graphic form from the Bank of America. BOA polled 30 executives and 30 leaders of various ESG groups to determine which ESG issues are most relevant to external stakeholders and the company's core business strategy. From there, Bank of America identified 29 ESG issues. Everything from ethical behavior to retail branch location strategy, greenhouse gas emissions, to investor activism and proxy voting, and map those issues to a coordinate grid. That let Bank of America define how each issue was important to the business. This sounds precisely like a risk assessment to me, but Bank of America used it to help build out their ESG program moving forward. In the Bank of America materiality map, the G in ESG, i.e. governance, was seen as transparency. That brings up another area in which compliance can help lead the corporate ESG effort. The Department of Justice said in 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs that the compliance function should lead a company's institutional justice and fairness efforts. Part of that includes being transparent with stakeholders and by engaging with them, not simply but talking, but also listening. Neil Minow said, I've spent more than 30 years studying corporate failure, and the one constant indicator is responding to criticism with hostility instead of constructive engagement. Every board member should make sure this does not happen. They should expect a lot more interest from shareholders in the quality of the board with the emphasis on independence that goes beyond resume disclosures. Wise boards will solicit suggestions from investors and make sure that all directors know their obligation as fiduciaries is to the shareholders, not executives, and that their actions make clear the message to shareholders as well. Exxon's management should well heed Minnow's words. If it continues to fight its own shareholders, investors, over the direction they want the company to go, they may find themselves out on their collective backsides. For every compliance professional, never forget the G in ESG. Next up, the Biden administration and the Securities Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler have made clear that ESG reporting will be a priority for corporations, and indeed, they have to have climate change reporting available by the end of the year. This is a stark reversal from the prior administration, which seemingly wanted to make ESG considerations illegal from both the corporate and investor perspective. The SEC had previously announced the creation of the Climate and ESG Task Force in the Division of Enforcement. 
The Climate and ESG Task Force will develop initiatives to proactively identify ESG-related misconduct and will coordinate the effective use of division resources, including through the use of sophisticated data analysis to data mine and assess information across registrants and to identify potential violations. Not only is the Securities and Exchange Commission interested in ESG, but institutional investors have identified ESG as a key metric of organizations going forward. This makes how a company communicates with its ESG initiatives critical. One of the ways to do so is through a quarterly earnings call. A recent article entitled How to Bring ESG into the Quarterly Earnings Call had some interesting aspects, not only focusing on the ESG issue, but for compliance issues. The authors believe that companies must integrate ESG wholly into their business strategies rather than relegating them to a sidebar. But we also recognize that it's challenging for corporations to include more ESG information for a variety of reasons. However, they lay out a framework which I have adapted for the compliance profession. Number one, lay the groundwork. The key is that participants are likely to receive ESG information more favorably if they've had prior occurrences or encounters with an ESG disclosure. Investors and management alike need a base level of comfort and confidence with ESG issues, and that kind of familiarity can be generated in a couple of ways, beginning with consistently sharing sustainability data, usually in the form of an annual sustainability report. The authors believe key performance indicators on most of the financial pertinent issues for the company, as well as financial figures that link the company's sustainability performance with its financial performance are critical. Number two, adapt the earnings call schedule. Management should develop a smart plan for how to organize each quarterly call so that ESG matters are fully integrated into the call. One approach is to provide quarterly updates on key ESG performance and ESG-driven financial measures, such as revenues from more sustainable products and services, improved retention rates, and effective efficiencies through waste reduction. Another is to focus on the CEO segment of the call on a high level of corporate purpose and how the company builds value by engaging with stakeholders on this most material ESG issue. Number three report on and fully explain the return on ESG investment. Here, the author suggests an organization set out a longer-term plan at the outset by explaining the substantive ESG issues the company is managing. In report on the financial aspects of the ESG efforts as appropriate, some examples are, A, benchmark the retention rate against rates at other companies in your sector. B, if your company reduced carbon emissions, report on energy savings associated with those initiatives as the manufacturing process commences. In commercial real estate, greener buildings can command rent premiums. C, in the supply chain, disclose reduction in the supply chain disruptions caused by climate-related severe weather or drought, for example, and the revenues retained because your business can maintain continuous supply in the face of such events. Four, develop cross-functional collaborations. This is where compliance should have a larger role as greater ESG-related disclosures often force functions within a company to work together. Your company can co-develop content, such as a summary of the company's materiality assessment, single-side summaries of how a company is investing to grow by addressing the most pertinent issues. A logistics and transport company, for instance, might report on its efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and save money through planning more efficient energy routes and converting to electric vehicles. 
Treat the earnings call as theater. If you weren't aware of this, you should be. As an earnings call, it should be a highly staged, tightly managed spectacle. The company and analysts are the key players in the drama. Consequently, if management team is added an ESG as a strategy element, it's important to enlist the help of the analyst to shift part of the quarterly conversation towards longer-term ESG themes. This is yet another area where the corporate compliance function should take the lead. Always remember your earnings call is an event. You want to involve the participants in ways that advance your ESG goals. That may mean orchestrating what happens to some degree, not with a deceptive aim, but to ensure the ESG story is told in a way that informs and animates everyone who is present. With both the regulators and your investor base watching your organization, you should take the opportunity to move the ball forward. And I would like to end with some thoughts on why I believe that it's going to be critical that the compliance function lead the corporate ESG effort. When you think about what ESG is in terms of the three letters, environmental, social, or sustainable, and governance, you'll see those are directly within the wheelhouse of compliance. Because what does compliance do? It sets up a framework and then allows you to measure against that framework. That's what you need from ESG. You need to be able to measure something and improve it. In the compliance world, we would call that remediation through continuous monitoring and continuous improvement. The same is true in the ESG world. And compliance is, I think, uniquely suited to perform this function. And more importantly, compliance really should do this because, as the Department of Justice has told us, institutional fairness and institutional justice are directly within the wheelhouse of the chief compliance officer. When you couple this with the requirement under the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs that the corporate compliance function must have access to all data within the company, that really only compliance is going to have that sort of visibility across multiple data silos. And you already have to do this from the Department of Justice perspective for anti-bribery and anti-corruption compliance program. So it's not a far step to do this for ESG as well. The next reason is think about how the DOJ laid out the framework of how you should think through improving your compliance program. It all starts with a risk assessment, and then you move from a risk assessment to manage that risk. You put structures in place to manage that risk, and then you monitor that risk management strategy. And from there, you improve your compliance program as you see gaps or other holes develop in your compliance program, whether it's a violation, whether it's someone who stepped too close to a gray line, or whether it's someone who stepped over the gray line. Nevertheless, this framework works extraordinarily well for the ESG role as well. Think about Matt Kelly and his materiality map. That's just a risk assessment in another name. You map the materiality of ESG, and then you take that, or you assess the materiality, and then you map that. And then you put systems in place so that you can actually have monitoring of what your goals are under your materiality. If it's environmental, we've talked about several of these in this podcast, whether it's energy efficiency, whether it's less carbon output, whether it's moving carbon neutral, whether it's cutting back on your international travel because of COVID-19 and the cost savings, but then you realize you're actually uh, reducing your carbon footprint by having your executives travel less, 40% less after COVID-19. Sustainability. What goes into sustainability? What goes into social? Well, obviously, the social justice movement is critical for this. 
Diversity and inclusion are critical for this. Who is really suited to lead that? It's the compliance profession. Why? Well, as I said, the Department of Justice has told us already that they expect the chief compliance officer to be leading institutional justice and institutional fairness. A large part of diversity and inclusion is not simply accepting, but it's listening. Listening to the concerns of your diverse population so that their views are included in how you move forward. What does that sound like? It sounds like a chief compliance officer with an open door policy, encouraging a speak up culture because as Dr. Kyle Welch has taught us, or rather his research has led us to understand, if you have a speak up culture within your organization, not only are you going to have a 20% or material cost savings, but you're actually going to have a more profitable company. So having that type of speak up around social part of DNI and the social part of ESG is critical for a compliance officer and a critical role that every compliance officer plays. And in governance, what's governance? It's transparency. Think about the start of this podcast where I took a deep dive into Exxon's imbroglio around its recent uh, board of directors. What did Exxon fail to do? It failed to listen to its own shareholders. And indeed, it told them, we don't want to listen to you and we don't want to take your advice. And Exxon paid the price. And now Exxon has, for those of you who may invest in Exxon, frankly, probably a better board because they have more diverse views who are not in lockstep with a company who is not moving towards carbon neutrality. So if you really take all of these disparate topics I've talked about in this podcast, I think you'll see that they're really well-suited for the compliance professional to hold. And I don't think that there is really one corporate discipline which has as broad a base of understanding of the organization as compliance does, because compliance has to. And finally, if compliance doesn't uh, take the lead in this, compliance may be at one point down the future reduced to almost a technical function within a corporation. It could be the same as internal audit. When's the last time you heard of someone from internal audit heading a major function within an organization outside of internal audit? If compliance is going to be simply policies and procedures and rules, the the check-the-box exercise that so many companies want to have, and indeed some commentators think that's what you should have, then compliance is going to go the way, frankly, of the dodo bird. So you need to look at your own company, look at the opportunities within your company, if you're a compliance professional, to expand into a more of a broad-based ESG footprint. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode of the ESG Report.